0: Welcome to Rumble Strip Vermont, I'm Erica Heilman. Today, a story about Vaughn Hood, a Vietnam combat vet and my sister's hairdresser. We talked in the back of his salon on Eastern Avenue up in St. Johnsbury. Here's Vaughn Hood. I grew up in a small town in southeastern Michigan it had a population of 150 and most everybody worked in factories I'm from working people and I'd overheard my father say that he'd like one of his sons to become a barber he grew up during the Depression so he said uh, barbers didn't make very much money but he said they got a dime a haircut they did make money whereas he said nobody else made money so he thought barbering was depression proof so when I realized I couldn't go to college I decided I guess I could be a barber. So I saved my money for about six months and had enough money to pay for my tuition to barber school, which was quite an experience for me being a country boy because it was in Detroit, Michigan. Couldn't believe how tall the buildings were, you know. And uh, (laughs) there was a guy there that uh, was a porn star, but he was getting too old to be a porn star anymore, so he was going into barbering as sort of a second occupation, you know. My mom would have, you know, never understood that sort of thing. But I thought it was very cool. I excelled at barbering, and I heard about a, a competition down in Ohio. It was called the United States Barber Spectacular. They had shows all over the country, so I decided to compete in it. And I competed against, I think, about thirty-five other barbers, and I won. Which shocked me, I was seven I was eighteen. I got drafted uh, while I was in school last three months of school, but the owner of the school sent him back a scathing leather <laughs> and uh demanded that they let me finish school, so I finished school and uh, then I went into the military March of nineteen sixty eight I was five eight and uh, I weighed hundred and eighteen pounds. <laughs> Yeah, If I'd have known it, I'd probably lost five pounds. They probably wouldn't have taken me, but I didn't know that. So here I am. I'm a 118-pound hairdresser going to the military, and I knew I was going to Vietnam. So I I sold uh, anything that I owned. I wrote my uh, fiance a Dear Mary letter, broke off with her, because I, I didn't want to have the responsibility of trying to come home to somebody. And then I also sat down with my mom before I left. And we sat down at the kitchen table, and I said, Mom, I said, I'm going to Vietnam. I don't know if I'll make it home alive or not. I said, so um, this is who I want to have speak at my funeral. Uh, This is where I want to be buried at, and this is who I want my possessions to go to, my brother and my sister. And uh, she said, yes, she would take care of that. And I I said, I've got another favor to ask you. I said, "Um, when I leave... I said, I would appreciate it very much if you didn't cry. And, you know, looking back on it now, I think that's a hell of a thing to ask your mother, you know. And uh, when I left on the bus, she did not cry. The reason I said that was because I thought the only reason she'd want to cry is if she thought I wasn't coming home. So it was symbolic for me. So I went to Vietnam. I ended up in the 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry, which is Custer's Old Battalion. And um, I like to say it hasn't changed any. Uh, the uh, sergeant of the company met me when I got off the helicopter. And he says, welcome to Delta Company, Sergeant Hood. He said, uh, if you survive your first three months here, he says, you'll probably survive your tour. He said, but most people don't survive their first three months. So he was sort of giving me the straight poop. But anyway, I um, was taken and introduced to my men. I was put in second platoon and I got second squad. Delta Company had uh, a few nicknames. One was Dying Delta and the other one was No d de- roast Delta. Your d de- roast date is your discharge date. I think the year that I was there, we probably had uh, over 300 casualties. And this is out of a company of 140 i think we had probably close to 35 killed out of the over 300 casualties so the um, the odds were poor hardly anybody survived the first 3 months anybody who did survive the first 3 months was considered an old timer of course i i survived my whole tour so i saw a lot i'm a little embarrassed about saying it but I I do want to say it because I I want I want to put out how I did. You know, I was awarded the Bronze Star. I was uh, awarded the Army Commendation Medal for heroism. I was um, uh, given the uh, Purple Heart, and um, and I I was also got the uh, Air Defense Medal for having over ninety combat flights. So I, what I'm saying is I, I served honorably. I don't consider myself a brave person. I don't like conflict. I avoid conflict. I would rather hide than uh, to uh, have confrontation. I'm a gentle person. I'm a hairdresser, for Christ's sakes. I'm a small person. I am probably as unlikely a person to have been through what I've been through as you could possibly get. I mean, I was 118 pounds, you know? I was five foot eight, and they made me a goddamn sergeant. I mean, is that stupid or what? was not exactly what you'd call leader material, you know what I'm saying? And I also didn't, I didn't believe in the war. I didn't know what it was about. I had no idea. What the hell are we doing here? Our our job was uh, search and make contact. If the uh, intelligence had a report that there was a certain size unit in a certain area, they would fly us into the area and drop us off and let us walk around until we ran into that unit. And judging by the weapons that they fired at us, they could decide if it was indeed that size unit or not because certain size units carry certain size weapons. So basically what we were sent in to do was to draw fire and then we would get ourselves out as best we could and and then move on to the next project. The first time that that my squad walked into an ambush, my point man was uh, killed right off the bat which was pretty typical when you walked into an ambush. usually lost at least one, if not two or three or four or five or whatever. So I, my point man got killed. At least we were pretty sure he was dead. We weren't positive, but we were pretty sure. And the significance of that is that if he were alive, we would stay there uh, no matter what it took and get him out. He would generally, oftentimes, lose people trying to get people out. But because we were pretty sure he was dead, we pulled back and left him. And then we called in uh, air support. So Phantom jets came in, dropping uh, 300-pound bombs and uh, napalm. They just beat the area with uh, bombs and napalm. So when they got done with that, we went back in to, well, one, see if there were any enemy left, but also to pick up, our man and um, we expected to find a crispy critter in there if we found anything you know because there's no trees left and there's just big holes in the ground and everything's burnt to a crisp you know everything's black and ash but anyway we walked back in and here he was sitting against a tree he was dead he had a bullet hole through the center of his forehead and his eyes were wide open and uh, his um, uniform was not burned the bark around his body where he was leaning against tree was not burned and the grass around his body was not burned and that was the only thing around there that wasn't burned so it was just it was spooky it was like the spirit of the man had stayed and protected him and we were just all standing there looking at it like holy mackerel is really weird you know that was my first my first time in combat people don't understand how thick jungle is jungle is thick I mean you can't see five feet through the jungle I mean it's thick so if you walked into an ambush you still wouldn't see them you could be in contact a hundred times and never see a live NBA. you could lose you know dozens of men and still never see one and I remember um, I always I thought well if I just could see one because you know I've been a hunter all my life you know then one day I actually saw one He was standing in an open bunker. So I took my M16 and I switched it over to fully automatic, which we called rock and roll. And uh, I took a very careful bead on him. And uh, I squeezed the trigger. My gun misfired. My one chance, my gun misfired. (laughs) I think my men trusted me. And... um, I asked things of them that seem impossible, that they would do those things for you. Sometimes it's give your life. I didn't really have a problem with, um, I didn't feel particularly bad when people got killed. I mean, you'll feel bad, but that's what we were there for. You had to be willing to die. Or not well, it didn't matter. People died. What I felt bad about was people being maimed. When I gave an order and people were maimed, that really bothered me. It still bothers me. They spent the rest of their lives maimed. And they did that for me. And they did that for you, and they did that for everybody. You know, they, they knew what they were doing. I lost one young man that uh, I was close to. He was supposed to go back to the States to marry his uh, fiancée because she was pregnant, and they were going to give him permission to go back. He only had a, like a few days before he was going to go back. And uh, at that time, I was a platoon sergeant rather than a squad leader. And he, I took him on as my RTO, my radio telephone operator. So he was with me in the middle of the platoon rather than with a squad where he normally would be where well, my old squad walked into an ambush again <laughs> they were under heavy fire and uh, my rto his name was jerry clute he said sarge i i want to go help him i said i said jerry you're you're your own man if you want to go up there go so he did he just put his radio down and he ran up there you know to 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 help, help his squad anyway he was shot by a sniper he, he didn't last 5 minutes the squad called back and said Jerry was hit so i i ran up and carried Jerry back and um left him, and then I ran back up, and I had to get my men out, so, so we got them all back. But um, He died under his own will. He wanted to go up, and I didn't stop him from going up. I could have. I, mean, I was his sergeant. I could say, no, you can't go up there, you know, but I didn't, and he did what he wanted to do, and he died that way. I, I think it's extremely honorable. It brings tears to my eyes because he was a great man. I I didn't follow orders all the time. I wasn't a good soldier. I tried to protect my men. I tried to protect my squad, my platoon. Let's say... Uh, my squad would be sent out on a 360, a patrol, around a NDP, night defensive position. If I had to, I'd do a 360. But if I didn't have to, if nobody was keeping an eye on me, I'd take my men out maybe 100 meters, maybe a little bit further. We'd sit down, write letters, smoke cigarettes. The radio man would call in every now and then on our progress, you know. And then... The- couple hours, which is normally what it would take to do a 360. we just get up and walk straight back in again. I mean, why would we want, in a squat, be by ourselves out in the jungle, in contact with an enemy with no help? I mean, you're just gonna lose men, right? So I I'd I rather than do that. If I could not follow orders, I did not follow orders. And I think that's, well, I know that's part of why so many of my men survived. There was another sergeant in the company. I had one of the other platoons. We called him Sergeant Rock. I don't even know his name. But uh, the Rock had been there. This was his third tour in the jungle. Anybody that survived one was doing well, let alone three. So he had everybody's respect. I modeled myself after the Rock. I tried to be tough like the Rock, you know. And I was in the rear... At one point, and when I say the rear, I mean a, a LZ, which is not exactly the rear. It's a it's a fortified area out in the middle of the jungle. Maybe I was wounded or something. I don't know why I was there, but the rock happened to be there at the same time. And the men had asked him to check me out and see if I was cool. And so <laughs> rock takes me uh, off to the side, tries to get me stoned. And that's what it would mean to be cool, whether they could be stoned with me or not, you know. Anyway, it takes me to get me stoned. It took a while, but he got me stoned. And uh, there was a cafeteria there, and so we raided the cafeteria. We found white bread and uh, mayonnaise and pepper. So we had, we had mayonnaise and pepper sandwiches. They were delicious. We went back to the field. He told them that I was cool. So all of a sudden, I was accepted. When you're out in the field, uh, fear hits you eventually. You can be there for a little while without being a afraid but eventually fear is gonna hit doesn't change anything it just means you still got to be there only in fear the fear finally hit the rock and he wanted a rear job so they made a job for him because they didn't really have a job for him it was nice of him to do that his job was uh, killing rats rats come in from the jungle all over the place so he would kill rats and he started drinking a lot of beer at least a case a day. And he would smoke pot all day long. And uh, he came up to me one day, he says, uh, Vaughn, he says, uh, I wanna find myself. He said, like you. So anyway, he continued with his drinking and his smoking and and he started taking uh, crystal meth. He'd take it by the spoonful. And uh, one day he comes up to me and he says, Vaughn, he says, I think I found myself. And there was just nobody home. He was gone, he wasn't there anymore. He was checked out, the man I patterned myself after. <laughs> we called ourselves grunts, you know. When a, when a grunt would run into a grunt, uh, you'd say, Hey, man, what's happening? And response to that is, Hey, man, it don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing, man. That was our, hello, how are you? Hey, what's happening, man? It don't mean nothing, man. It don't mean nothing. I have PTSD. I it visits me every day. I live with it every day. <laughs> you learn to cope. You learn to cope. Um I'm sorry about being emotional. People have no idea. They have no idea. They turn me into a killer. Okay? I am not a killer. They're very good at it. They're very good at it. And of course, that was my job. People really don't understand that. A lot of people, most people probably say, "Oh, I could never kill somebody. Well, they could. Given the right circumstances and uh, the right place at the right time, they could and they could do a whole lot worse. They're kidding themselves. Now I know what I'm capable of, and I know what other people are capable of. By the time I got home, I couldn't feel anything. I was emotionally cold at a certain point your mind protects you that way you get shut down emotionally there were times when i wanted to feel something for somebody i cared about i couldn't feel anything just wasn't there i came home early actually uh, because my dad was very ill and he died a couple months after i got home and um couldn't feel anything for him and and i wanted to i knew i should but I also say that <laughs> the first year and a half I was home, I' walked around grinning like a fool all the time. You know I mean, I was happy to be home. I was happy to have a warm, dry bed to lay in, a soft bed to lay on. I was happy to have clean clothes on. I was just grinning from ear to ear for about a year and a half. <laughs> so um I didn't realize it at the time, but i I was suffering from survivor's guilt. I wanted to prove that I had a right to be alive. I wanted to prove that those men who died around me didn't die for nothing. And the only way I could do that was to be the very best that I could be to live on for them, which is way too much responsibility for (laughs) a 20-year-old man. But that's the way it was. The only way I could be as good as I could be was to do it through my work. I was becoming a hippie, so long hair had arrived. And I wanted to learn how to cut long hair. Barbering wasn't about cutting long hair. And it takes time to do it, much more time than barbering takes. And, of course, I was working in a barbering atmosphere. I was working for barbering rates. A normal haircut in barbering, it takes 10, 15 minutes. I was spending anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half on a haircut. Partially because I'm teaching myself how to do this work that I didn't know how to do. So I made the other barbers I worked with look bad. And also I wasn't making any money. The owner of the barbershop wasn't making any money either on me. So I'd keep getting fired from jobs. Okay, So after losing about six jobs, I thought, well... I got to open my own shop. A lot of barbershops that time were going out of business because of long hair. So I drove to Ann Arbor, Michigan to, to buy a barbershop with 15 bucks in my pocket. So um, I was this long-haired barber standing in the window of a barbershop a half a block from the University of Michigan. Who's a long-haired person going to go to, Right. People would come in, I'd tell them, seven bucks for a haircut. I said, it comes with shampoo. They'd say, well, I don't want a shampoo. I'd say, that's okay, it's still seven bucks. So they'd say, well, okay, I'll get a shampoo. So I'd shampoo them, I'd cut their hair, and of course it was something they'd never experienced before, something they'd never seen before. I started getting busier and busier. Before long, I was, I was booked like two weeks ahead. And I was working 14 hours a day, six days a week. I decided every time I booked two weeks ahead, I'd raise my prices two bucks. By the end of a year and a half, we were 16 bucks for a haircut, which was unheard of at the time. And I thought, when I opened the place, I thought, where in the hell am I gonna find anybody stupid enough to cut hair like I do? But what would happen was that young barbers would come in and say, can I watch you? And I'd say, sure. So they'd watch me. They'd go back to their barber shop and try to do what I was doing. And they'd get fired from their job. And they'd come back to my shop and ask me if they could work for me. And I'd say yes. <clears throat> I was using my work to get back in touch with me. I would work myself to a point of exhaustion. Then I would focus on something that would have some kind of an emotion involved with it. And I would use the energy from that to keep working. But using using ideas that were connected to emotion that I was out of touch with. I don't even know what I was focusing on when I was trying to evoke an emotion. I just knew that I was working past my limits. I wanted to feel things again. I was fighting a battle on myself using hair cutting to get there. I was doing it for those people who died. Shortly after I got back, I took a course in uh, transcendental meditation And I started practicing that. And uh, probably about a year and a half or so, or two, after I got back, I was um, driving a car, and uh, I started going through a conflict that I had with another person in my mind, and I got angry. And um, I was so involved with the thought process that I drove someplace where I didn't intend to drive, and I I didn't even remember driving there, and it scared me and all of a sudden i started crying and i couldn't stop and that scared me so i'm thinking oh my god i i'm losing it i need help so i headed for a hospital <laughs> and as i got closer and closer to the hospital i kept driving faster and faster and i was like going through stop signs and running red lights and you know it was it was dangerous you know and uh I saw this guy walking down a sidewalk and I pulled over my car and I said, I'm having a nervous breakdown, will you drive me to the hospital? So he jumped in my car and drove me to the hospital and I walked into the emergency room and I said, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown, I need some help. They got me in with a, a psych person and um uh, he just recommended that I just go home and sleep on it and you know. So I went home. And at least I wasn't crying anymore. And um it felt like I was losing it, you know, and it scared me because if I was losing it, I thought I was dangerous because I had lost myself a few times in combat too, and I was dangerous, and I didn't want to hurt anybody. So rather than hurt somebody, I, I thought maybe I should just kill myself. But anyway, I, I sat down on the couch with my legs stretched out on the couch and And I started uh, practicing TM, meditating. Well, almost immediately, I felt my head being forced down to my chest. And I felt this, what in my mind's eye appeared to be like this golden light that was coming out from behind my head, out over my head, just flowing out. It felt solid, you know. And it just flowed and it flowed and it flowed and it flowed. I just fell asleep right there where I was at. I woke up in the morning and I felt powerful. Powerful. I don't know what it was. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I have no idea. But um, whatever it was, it was a good thing. (laughs) When I was a little kid, 10 years old maybe, I don't know, riding my bike in my hometown, which I did a lot, I was riding my bike and I looked up at the sky and I thought, how far does the sky go? I tried to imagine how far the sky went, and I, I just couldn't imagine it. And I thought, well, that, that must be eternity, you know? And then I thought, I thought well, I'm going to do whatever I have to do in my life to make sure I don't have to come back again. I don't know why. I mean, it was just, I had that thought. I remember it. So I've tried to live my life that way. And uh, and uh, I think I have achieved that. I have lived my life so that uh, I do believe I have a choice of whether I come back or not. But now that I feel that way, now I want to come back. I got to a point where I had a choice, whereas before I didn't have a choice. Now I do want to come back. <laughs> I'm a good person. I'm as good a man as there is. I do the very best I can every day with every bit of work that I do. I don't hold back. And um, I feel that everybody else should do the same. Because I have lots of reasons not to. I could say, screw you all. Fuck you guys. I mean, this society has brutalized me. They have hurt me, and I carry the wounds. But yet I give to them every day. I give them all I've got. it's yeah, the way it is. That was Vaughn Hood. Vaughn and his wife, Bev, are the owners of Jabot 2, a salon in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. The story was co-produced by me and by Larry Massett. This is Rumble Strip Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening.